Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk uh, technology, computing, gaming, uh, to internets. Um, really excited to bring a few chats to you tonight and also uh, talk through a, a bunch of great stuff. Um, tonight behind the desk, we do have Maze Wallen. Maze, how are you? Hi, I'm well. Hanging in there. Hanging in there. Hanging in there. Um, <laughs> that's a pretty good score uh, at the moment, so we'll take that. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Dan Salmon, how are you doing? I'm I'm good. I'm I'm hanging in there. I'm also hanging out here. So hanging out there. <laughs> Change so scenery. Bit of bit of scenery. I do I look I I do love coming into studio and you know hanging out, seeing you guys on the screen, seeing Mon as she walks out of the studio on a Wednesday night for the last time in months. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm doing good. Well, if you weren't hanging out there, we couldn't hang out here, so we do appreciate that. Um, <laughs> I'll be with you also. Uh, I'm Warren Davies. And tonight on the show, uh, there are uh, moves afoot to increase the reach of local agencies to secure our metadata from uh, international services. Um, so we are concerned and interested, and we're talking to uh, one of the directors of Digital Rights Watch, Lucy Kolkova. Um, she might correct me on that a bit later, but interested to have a, a chat there uh, in a few minutes' time. Uh, also, across the year, uh, education and, and how we learn all kinds of things uh, has changed a lot, uh, of course, particularly in, in parts of the world that are um, in some kind of restrictions or, or lockdown. So tech has had a, a big role in that uh, for better and uh, I guess I'd say for worse as well. And uh, Associate Professor uh, Therese Keane of Swinburne University will join us a little bit later in the show to have a talk about that, um, which is good. But before then... Uh, there's a bit of uh, bit of news that is interesting. We might even just have a, a quick chat about that um, that particular bill related to uh, access to our metadata. I think I saw this through the news, uh, maybe maybe Innovation Oz. There is uh, some business in federal parliament at the moment for a telecommunications legislation amendment, or what's known as the uh, International Production Orders Bill of uh, 2020. Um, it's actually being considered by the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security uh, with a terrible acronym, which is this. Something like that. Sure. Great, great ties and badges uh, for those folks. So they're having a look at it. Um, they are concerned that uh, end-to-end encryption and, I guess, um, a, a lot of the technology that does its best to ensure our privacy is preventing local intelligence uh, analysts and, uh, and partners from, uh, I guess, accessing uh, our communication. Um, one of the interesting things is if you look at the news and um, ultimately I think it's Dutton that's responsible for that, they're not necessarily naming terrorists at the moment as the target of um, what they uh, need to be looking out for, but um, they're calling out uh, child trafficking, which is obviously um, something to be um, very concerned about, but not something that really comes up here in Australia. Um, it's been a big part of the conversation about, um, I guess, undermining our, our privacy uh, in the States. I forgot the name of the bill, but it had a terrible impact on, on uh, sex workers and um, sex-positive community in the States. Um, it'll come to me during the show. But... Um, yeah, uh, it's interesting. It, it, um, the International Production Orders Bill provides a framework for uh, local agencies to obtain independently, independently authorised international production orders for interception, stored communications and telecommunications data uh, related to um, specific providers uh, without, um, as part of international agreements but without a warrant, um, which is uh, a main concern for us. You don't necessarily have to have done anything wrong for them to be uh, having a poke around in theory. Um, 
uh, yeah, there's a whole host of those, but um, we'll have a have a look at that a little bit later in the show. Um, do, do, do both or either of you um, use like strong, strongly encrypted communication, or are you sort of pretty happy to let it hang out there, using think, the kind of defence yeah. that if you're not doing something wrong, you've got nothing to worry about? Definitely don't agree with that one. Um, <laughs> no. But yeah, I've been getting, I've got my Nord VPNs and things setting up and I'm, uh, you know, I've been using a new um, Viveldi browser and changing things away from Google and all of that. It's happening, you know, it's slow. It's not easy to um, disentwine myself from the Google maze that exists mm. online. Um, and and, that's you, you know, isn't it? The Google services. maze that exists online? Right? So, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah, I really feel like Google could steal my identity if it really wanted to. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's my main one at the moment is like I've I've cut most ties from from the Zuckerberg um, and Google is next. <laughs> um, yeah. It sounded yeah. ominous. I like it and I want to be on board with it. Google's next. <laughs> I was um, doing some reading up on it the other day, and um, during the early days, Google actually built an intranet for the CIA, which is um, interesting, uh, amongst okay. amongst their other side projects um, in about 2004, 2005, which is, uh, which is nice. But... Um, Dan, what about yourself? Do you kind of do you have a mix of kind of styles, or do you try and keep it as discreet as possible? Oh, uh, look, I'm pretty, I'm pretty lax. I, I, it's it's one of these things where it's, it, I just if I don't think about it, then it doesn't bother me. But obviously, in current times, when you've got a lot more time to think about things, that's when you start worrying about things. And I don't know, I, I, I should be doing more than I do. I think mm. it is it was probably the simplest simplest answer to that. I mean, things like. You know, like using stuff like, you know, DuckDuckGo, for example, you know, it's just, it's not as, like the search results just aren't as good as Google, which, you know, is the problem. Mm. But, you know, we need to support these systems that aren't Google in order for them to thrive. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a kind of chicken and egg scenario. Mm. Interesting. Um, yeah, I think I, I tend to kind of change with the, depending on the circumstances. I think the hard one is because we, um, so for example, with communication, we don't, text or call as much as we used to and yeah. um, it's, it's very hard to have easy connections to um, I guess loose connections so you've got standard things like messenger which pretty much everyone's on so it's easy to find people that way and then it's hard to find something that everyone's using so you tend to go to the stuff that's you know less protected and, and more common um, but you know I guess sort of in your in your part there, Dan, uh, a little bit lazy as well. But I, I think one-to-one for close contacts, it's great to get on things like Signal and, um, you know, WhatsApp's still not too bad, but mm. got some questions around it, I guess. Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of that, um, Maze, you've been following a story around um, content moderators and, uh, and Facebook, I believe. Yeah, so um, content moderators at Facebook are uh, most of the time not full-time employees. They're contractors. Um, and so they don't get most of the rights of the full-time employees, including um, things like sick leave and things like hazard pay, which is what they're asking for now. So um, the Austin, Texas office um, of the of the content moderators have been asked to come back to back to the office, um, and you know I don't think anyone in the U.S. particularly wants to go back to the office or or if it's safe anywhere in the U.S. to do that. Um, 
And so they're not seeing, you know, why this needs to happen. And the statement from Facebook just says, you know, there is some content that you can't watch at home, which, you know, they've been working this whole time. Um, yeah, and I guess, you know, they're, they're sort of sick of this treatment. Um, there's some of the groups also infected by this who are also um, contractors or casual employees um, are moderation groups that were made um, during Black Lives Matter movement as well um, to really nail down on on racism, both internally in, in the Facebook office but also on the um, content moderation side. There's been unfair moderation of, you know, different... Uh, different opinions, if people want to call them that. Um, yeah, so they are, they're striking um, and starting to unionise and that sort of thing. And the really cool thing is that because um, everyone has, you know, sort of got this intranet, I suppose, you know, they've got all these internal forums and things, is that the full-time employees are a bit more connected to the contractors now. Um, and so they've been able to stand up also and be like, well, you know, these people should get hazard pay, these people should get these rights, these people should get these sorts of things. Um, yeah, and there's a great quote on the Vice article that um, you've linked, Warren, that says, no, snacks don't make up for it, no one cares about the snacks, which I think <laughs> is just, it's just so Silicon Valley, you know, just because there's a friggin' slide in the office doesn't mean I'm happy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I walk past the slide in sadness while I go and do more work. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Reminds me of the things I can't do. Yeah, so solidarity um, with those contractors. I think it's fair enough that they don't think that social distancing in the in the office is really going to work that well. Um, yeah, I hope that I hope that they get their their demands. Um, yeah, historically not treated very well, you know, for such a incredibly tough job. Um, mm. Seeing all that content. Mm. Um, one thing that may perk them up, but um, only briefly, is uh, some new iPhones, um, which are uh, <laughs> coming out. Hey, they are—they are candy coated. Candy coated? No, I was—I was looking at that. I was actually just remembering a story from um, uh, sitting at a, a, a client meeting earlier in the year, and they were talking about uh, moderators they had on their platform. For it was a product that was not very, particularly intense, but still. You know, it was a concern for people and they wanted quick answers. And a lot of the content moderators for that organisation were showing signs of PTSD and were needing to get um, counselling and, and support and so forth. And everyone in this place was just kind of shocked at some of the stuff that, that came up. I, I was just thinking there, they, I mean, they're looking at um, uh, assault, pornography, murder, you know, all of those kinds of things. I was just thinking, imagine coming home and people saying, like, how was your day? Like, what was it like? And just kind of throwing your hands up going... You know, it's kind of like going to the mines. I could do it for a few months, but you know, only for so long, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, it takes it takes a certain kind of fortitude to be able to continue. You know, not not just it's because it's not just viewing the content; it's making the call. Like, if, if obviously there's stuff that is out and out terrible that should be pulled down, but, mm. but being like the moral arbiter of something that you perhaps might think is. Um, you know, reprehensible, but it is, mm. but not necessarily within policy or that kind of. I don't know. There's there's grey areas there too, which I don't think I would personally want to interact with. 
Mm. Yeah, I just wonder if you'd get desensitized as well. You'd be like, oh, no, that's not that bad. That can stay up. And, <laughs> or, you know. That's also a distinct possibility that terrifies me all I of a sudden. Yeah. It's, it's bizarre. I, I mean, just think about some of the stuff that gets through, and we're still talking about can we show nipples on Instagram and stuff like that. It's, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, Only female presenting nipples. Yes, correct. <laughs> um, the nipple can present. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> all, all, free all complex, complex, complex nipples. Um, it's a band. So isn't it? I, I did, I did point out that um, there are some new iPhones out. Um, <laughs> there have um, the iPhone 12 and iPhone 12 Mini. There's, you know, how we get into a bit of a kerfuffle every time about what's the numbering system going to be, and then the 10 kind of broke it. We kind of, you know, went to to tens and so forth, but. Um, yeah, there's going to be uh, yeah, there's a new standard one and a mini, um, and people do talk about. I actually feel like it's um, maybe a couple of versions back. Uh, it was an unusual conversation for people to say, "Hey, it's kind of XE," but um, now I'd say people are definitely uh, on the side of these are, and they are. They're like premium premium designer goods yeah. um, out of out of the reach of um, most people. Um, the prices aren't really pushing up, but they're expensive to start with. Um, but the the top one's like nearly two thousand US dollars, isn't it? Yeah, if you want the kind of like uh, you know XL um, uh, version, um, and you've got obviously you've got the pro versions um, these days as well. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, one of the interesting ones is um, some of the uh, water and dust resistant models. You can actually um, submerge um, in up to six meters of water for up to thirty minutes. Uh, which is interesting. Um, I, I guess if you're <laughs> buying a premium iPhone, you're probably also going snorkeling as well. So oh, yeah, that, true. That, but talking yeah, and listening yeah. at the same time underwater, I don't even know what to get in there. <laughs> like, uh, I can breathe and talk underwater. <laughs> there's, there's, I, 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 a little bit Steve Zissou there for a second. Yeah, just a That's little great. bit. Yeah. Um, but but I, I, I got to say there's some um, interesting critiques because one of the things I've, I kind of glanced over, my, I, I gravitated towards the criticisms because that's what I do. Um, and one of the criticisms was um, something that, so they're, they're basically saying that they're not going to be shipping them with um, the kind of plug adapters anymore. So you'll still get a mm. charging cable, but then you're not going to get the little brick to plug it into the wall, which, you know, in the interests of, you know, conserving materials and all that kind of stuff on face value, it seems great. Except for the fact that the higher end models are actually shipping with a USB C adapter rather than a USB A adapter, so all of your oh. home bra- <laughs> your home bricks, which we've all got hundreds of, won't be compatible with the cable for this for the higher end iPhones. They, it's just like guys, you've just every time, every, every damn time. time, every damn time. <laughs> we know, we, we know it's the headphone situation. Is uh, that going to some new oh, headphone no, situation? No more. No, they're not shipping with headphones anymore. Apparently. Oh, just no headphones. No headphones. I, I so think. I, I, no situation. I Done. guess. I guess not. They're just assuming that if people have lightning headphones lying around, or they're using um, wireless, which you know a lot of us are. I guess. Yeah. Mm. yeah. A, uh, a better piece of kit is now going out for our dogs as well, Dan. Um, I'd love to oh. you explain what's going on oh, here. Oh, I would love to be able to explain what's going on here. Um, it's it is the U.S. Okay, normally things that the U.S. Army does, I'm not cool with. And there's, like, a whole lot of animal, I suppose, ethics stuff in this. But basically, the U.S. Army is developing augmented reality for their uh, goggles for their military dogs. So 
the idea is that it's um, they're going to use it to enhance communication with the dogs and their human handlers because, you know, in existing warfare situations, a military dog is only as useful for the purpose of the use of a military dog as uh, it can be with the handler being nearby it to give commands and that kind of thing. So this is, this is a virtual reality headset with, oh, with, sorry, augmented reality headset for the dogs to communicate with their handlers. Um, it, 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 it's, it's, they've used walkie-talkies in the past. They've used, um, you know, other systems. This one um, cues augmented, uses augmented reality. It provides visual cues to the dogs while a camera in the goggles offers a live feed to the dog's point of view for the handler. Now, I mean, if it wasn't being used for warfare, this would be so cool. Um, it's interesting because apparently, according to um, one of the people in the U.S. Army Research Office, which is not ARPA, I looked it up, um, augmented, <laughs> augmented reality works differently for dogs than for humans. Um, it will be used to provide dogs with commands and cues. It's not for the dog to interact with it like human does. This new technology offers us a critical tool to better communicate with military working dogs. Um, it's, I, I guess yeah, it's, interesting. it's interesting. It's only a prototype, so we'll see where it goes. But, you know, we, we may see it filtering down into, um, you know, Rover at Homer. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not sure. I'm honestly not sure how I feel about this. I wonder about the dog's eyes. And I, I suppose that all of the dogs are the same breed, so they can all have, like, the same shaped Headset. I guess. Well, I, th- I think they're all kind of, you know, of that kind of Rottweiler, Doberman, angry kind of dog. They're not. They're not like a beagle at the airport sniffing for drugs. They've, they've, yeah. yeah. But um, it's I don't know. Gray areas. Yeah. Many, many gray areas. I wonder because it, like the VR um, recommendation is that you don't put it on kids under ten. You know, because we're actually we're still not sure about what it does to your eyes. Yeah, well, and that, that's actually um, a really good point. Like, well, and dogs, you know, yeah. develop at a different rate, different stage. So, like, if you're giving these glasses to a three-year-old dog, which you know is mature, is it really going to be? I don't know. Then we're getting into you know the actual lifespan of military dogs anyway. So, I, I, I'm, oh. I'm, let's yep. let's let's draw a line under this particular conversation. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts, and via the app. If you follow the parry and thrust of data retention and, and privacy protection, um, you would be aware of the organisation our next guest is working with, uh, Digital Rights Watch. Um, we came across a piece uh, earlier in the week around a new bill, which we mentioned at the top of the show, the international production orders to, I guess, procure uh, our metadata from international platforms, um, I guess, ostensibly in the interest of security and, and, and protection of our natural interests. But um, I don't know, we're not too pleased about that. So we thought we'll uh, reach out to Lucy and uh, and see what uh, she has to say about that. She's Program and Partnership Director at Digital Rights Watch. Um, Lucy, thanks for joining us on the show tonight. Hey, thanks for having me. We did um, absolutely bludgeon uh, your surname in the Skype chat in the, the virtual green room. How do we how do we say that in case we do need to use it? I just forgive people, um, and I use the <laughs> I use the pseudonym Lucy K just because it seems to sit better with the Anglo audiences. No offense. Um, no taken. Wow, um, it's Krahultava, so very Eastern European. Um, I stay true to my roots. Gotcha. We'll uh, we'll attempt that one later in the show. Um, so uh, I, I guess a, a starting point for uh, this conversation might even be the, the five eyes. And I, I think I even may have come across this in the past. And I, I remember 
being a huge fan of Get Smart growing up as a kid, the whole idea of the Five Eyes kind of network um, really appeals to me. But can, can you explain maybe from that starting point who the Five Eyes are and, and what their current, uh, I guess, stance is um, in relation to, to data retention and, uh, I guess, procuring our data? Yeah, thanks. that's a great question. It's, it's one of those kind of industry terms that gets thrown around and um, I think just kind of loses all meaning. <laughs> And so people kind of perceive it as the scary um, thing that haunts the internet. Um, but it's basically just an intelligence cooperation between um, what I would call the colonial nations, <laughs> um, but UK, Canada, US, Australia, New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And um, the idea is for them, well, the idea when it was established was for them to be able to work together to make sure the world is a secure and uh, nurturing place. I'm making up the nurturing part, but basically... <laughs> together <laughs> to make sure that the world is a secure place uh, with them looking out for us. Um, you can make up your own mind about how you feel about that, um, given the developments in those countries over the last few decades. So, so what would they consider to be um, secure in, in this context? What, um, what kinds of practices and uh, platforms and where is the, the kind of play space for this so-called security? Oh, I think uh, Five Eyes more deals in insecurity. <laughs> Um, that's, I guess, if I had to summarize, um, it's really what we've seen from them in the past few years is basically every time there's a Five Eyes ministerial statement, that's what happens. They gather for ministerial meetings once in a while just to discuss what's evil in the world. Um, you know, where does criminality happen and what are we worried about? Um, a lot of the recent years, as you guys mentioned in your intro, that's been, um, you know, things like, uh, sex trafficking. Um, and terrorism, those sort of big kind of scary things people are a little afraid to unpack. Um, and so once in a while they make a statement um, just to align, you know, it's it's a diplomatic bit of posturing sort of thing that happens, um, just to align and say, you know, we still agree <laughs> that we'd like the internet to be a little less secure uh, because that's what works for our intelligence agencies and the sort of snooping that we like to do um, as a part of our day-to-day. Um, and we've seen that really recently. There was just a statement last week, um, which is probably why that um, international procurement order, that IPO bill that's on the table, kind of came across your news feeds. Um, it does tend to drag up, uh, these statements tend to drag up whatever's um, currently on the tables in those countries. Mm. It, it seems, I'm going to say, most people would understand the concept that you either have end-to-end encryption or you don't. But um, even, I think it was a, a recent conference um where is it here um there was a panel at uh cyberuck 19 where they talked about we need to we need to have back-end access to a lot of these platforms to to do our jobs and so forth how does that stand up or even the pub test you might be familiar with how does that stand against the pub test where you've got organizations saying these things should be secure but not for us we should be able to come and go as we please um do do they have broad support for that idea it seems quite strange yeah, sorry, you might hear a really angry chihuahua in the background, and I was <laughs> for the <Jimmy> <laughs> that, that, That's fine, we can't hear it. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, you know, it's, um, it's an interesting move that I think we've seen in the last few decades, um, and it, it's something that kind of gets discussed matter-of-factly, like we should have access to these technologies. You know, law enforcement intelligence agencies look at these huge troves of data, Um, And they say, well, it's going to help us in investigations. 
Um, you know, but I think as a society and as democratic countries, we haven't really examined um, what that looks like. And I, I always frame it to people like this. If the government came through and said, we're going to build Facebook, like if Facebook didn't exist and the government came up with a plan to say, we're going to build this from scratch. This is the data it's going to collect and aggregate. These are the categories we're going to be able to separate our population into. These are the identifiers, you know. This is what it's going to do on the back end to generate um, a sort of, you know, an idea of you based on the information mm. you're sharing. People would not be okay with that. You know, you it just, I, and I mean, Australia is very lackadaisical, but I have to imagine even here, someone would be like, um, kind of upset that this is happening. Um, I imagine you guys um, would probably have opinions about that, right? Uh, but somehow, because we've allowed private industry to, for it, you know, to create it for whatever purpose. Um, now we're discussing access, even though, again, governments would never be able to build that from scratch. And I think that's the fascinating, um, you know, discussion of our time. Should they really, just because it exists, should they have access to it? Um, and I think for a lot of that data, no matter what it is, the answer is no. And that's an argument that's been made by, you know, technologists and other people, you know, what but it hasn't been successful. And I always like to say we've really lost, we've truly lost the battle of law enforcement and intelligence agency access to data. Anything that's out there, they can get their hands on. Mm. So, so I guess with, with that in mind, Lucy, how do we protect ourselves? Is there, has that horse completely bolted? Do we just need to live in the world in which we, where it exists now? Or are there, are, there, are there ways and means of fighting back? Well, you know, people... Um, I think people underestimate their own roles in these systems. Um, and governments are incredibly aware how sensitive um, these uh, sort of legal mechanisms, let's call it that, because that's what the, I, that's what the bill that you're talking about is. It's a legal mechanism. They, they forget how, no, they know how sensitive they are to public opinion. So the U.S. Um, you know, Department of Trade um, had... Uh, you know, had meetings with the UK civil society groups. They had meetings with Australian civil society groups about this agreement, you know, to, to discuss what would prohibit cooperation, um, you know, on different fronts. And I think that's interesting. So they, they are watching the responses. Um, so don't underestimate just the incredible role that individuals can play in the system. Um, and you can just look to people like Snowden. You know, I mean, he had a huge trove of information at his fingertips and what he did was massive, but it, he was just one person, one person who created these huge, huge, huge ripples. Um, so just using things like WhatsApp and Signal that you guys were discussing earlier, uh, you know, shows them that you are concerned and you know what's happening. You know, maybe you're using the time settings on Signal when you share messages and your messages auto delete, then there's no content for them to summon. Those are the sort of like little moves and tweaks you can do in your own behavior to claw back power and send the message that like we're seeing what's happening and we are not okay. Um, also, shameless plug: you should definitely follow Digital Rights Watch <laughs> <laughs> and Electronic Frontiers Australia. Mm. Is, is there any um, substantiation of their claims that we need to have access and we need to be using these tools to to fight these things? It, it's kind of like the, the COVID safe app at the moment, like, um, you know, you need to sign up and you need to be using it so we can all be safe. But there's there's very little evidence coming through that it is actually paying off in the way that 
governments have explained it to us that we should give up our freedoms or give up our data for, for the greater good is uh, are we hauling in sex traffickers and um, and um, you know spies uh, by the dozen every week or because uh, I mean when you think about it th- theoretically if um, bills like this get passed and 25 million Australians can have their data taken we should be hauling in you know hundreds of offenders um, at least uh, a proportionate kind of result to the the sacrifices that we make but I mean obviously you've got places like um, uh, digital rights watch who are holding governments to account and and sort of uh, 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 I guess you know being a stone in their shoe um, how, how, how do we hold them accountable I mean I think individually is good and I think you know signing up and contributing and so forth um, I mean we can't let them get away with it they have to actually show results I, I would say well you would hope so clearly you're not in politics. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, it's a fascinating question. It's, you know, a lot of time is difficult because these measures kind of get passed under the guise of national security. And so when you ask for details or how is it being applied, how is it being used, everyone's like, oh, it's so secret. We can't tell you. It will violate the whole thing. It will bring down our whole plan. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you would you would think over time we, uh, and, and I guess I don't need to go into this, but there's plenty of... Um, I think discourse on this uh, you, I think it was a year or two ago, New York times published this whole like exposure study that um, there was so much child exploitation material online and they had these huge numbers on Facebook, like huge numbers, um, you know, never before seen. It was very dramatic, big graphs, really good. Um, and you know, a part of a huge part of that was just because these platforms have improved the mechanisms through which people can report these things and kind of, you know, um, figure out how to bring that up as an issue. And and they themselves have started reporting the things that are, you know, given to them by the community. So it's it's a little bit of a false um, positive that some of these mechanisms have created. That totally aside, um, you know, I think it's interesting when you look at some of the language in things like um, the IPO and the statements that get made around that. Um, and what they've said, and I wrote this down because I think it's interesting, they say that encryption prevents the detection of criminal activity. So it's no longer about, you know, we can't get access to evidence. We know this is the network and we can't get access to the content or we, we can't get access to who they're talking to. It's they're preventing the detection of crime. So that implies that someone is there looking for criminal activity. You know, so it's really, you're going beyond something like here's a warrant and we have a warrant and we want the communications data of this person for the last week. You're really looking at a place where someone's going through um, and poking poking through data. And you've had this year, um, the Australian Signals Directorate was actually given the mandate to not just look abroad, but look domestically into networks. Wow, what a what a like incredible shift. Um, and it went like really unbeknownst to most people. It made some headlines. But that's huge. You have an intelligence agency that was designed to look outward and protect Australians, looking inside Australia, looking to prevent crime and detect crime in Australians' communications. That's a huge shift of what they're doing and the scope with which they're doing. So you can just imagine the sort of combing through comms that's happening to look for criminal activity. Absolutely. Mm. And probably some AI or machine learning, which has got, you know, all kinds of biases that we're all aware of already. 
so if if people are concerned about this and um, want to, I guess, make it known, whether it's to um, uh, Peter Dutton and, and that particular committee, what, what, what can Australians who are concerned um, do about this? Um, what would be the one or two things you'd recommend? Um, well, the committees do consultations on these bills, and I think it's important to um, respond to them. And they, they don't have to be huge responses, guys. I really want to dispel the myths that submissions to like these inquiries have to be some sophisticated document drafted by an academic, you know, like you and your mates sit down and write a page and just put it in there, um, you know, and just show them that people care um, and are looking at these issues. Even if you you raise questions, you can do that in those uh, submissions, you know, that you're not you 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 as a concerned citizen or person living in Australia don't understand, um, you know, the justification application. And second, I would say support the organization like Digital Rights Watch, like Electronic, Electronic Frontiers Australia, who are doing the real engagement and the real work with MPs. Absolutely. Uh, I think if, if, if we can take anything away from this conversation, Lucy, I think, you know, follow Digital Rights Watch and Electronic Frontiers Australia because you guys are providing a service that is so very important to the well-being of Australians online. I'm trying not to talk you up too much, but uh, Lucy Krahultskova, thank you so much for joining us uh, this evening. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Lucy. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. We are very interested to have a chat about um, the past eight or nine months and uh, not just here in Melbourne but uh, around the world. We've been learning, being educated, uh, picking up new skills and um, all kinds of things, Um, uh, I guess making the best that we can and technology has been a a big part of that. Uh, We're now joined um, in the uh, luxurious confines of the Skype um, green room by Associate Professor uh, Therese Keane of Swinburne University. Uh, Therese, um, thanks for coming on the show tonight. Thanks for having me. Um, how did you How did you get into? Uh, you know, I'm going to say edtech, but how did you How did you bring education and technology together? What was the path for you there? Oh, great question. Um, I actually my my first career was. Uh, been a computer teacher in secondary school. So um, I started off as a computer teacher over at, a, I'm going to say, at a boys' school um, in Bandura. So that's where I first began my uh, teaching career. And when I first came out into teaching my very first year, I was given four year 12 classes of IT. Whoa. Uh, so you can imagine a 21 year old female um, teacher walking in to four year 12 classes of 17, 18 year old males. So that was my introduction to teaching. Um, I, I should say, I stuck around for 17 years, not necessarily at that school, but um, I stuck around in education. I became a director of IT in a number of schools as well, where I oversaw um, one-to-one programs and, um, you know, not only just teaching IT to students, but also um, having professional development, professional learning for staff as well. So my my passion has always been computing and teaching computing. And I've written seven, no, 16 textbooks um, in <laughs> IT at VC level. So, um, wow. you know, over the last 25 years, so any uh, student who's probably done any form of um, IT in year 12 or year 11 would have probably had my textbook. So, so you know your stuff then? Uh, yeah, you could say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm really curious to know what, what kinds of things were you actually teaching in those in that first year or two? What, what was going on in computing? In yeah, look, at that, at that school um, that I was working in, they had Macs. So we used Hypercard. 
Um, I don't know if people remember HyperCard. Um, HyperCard was the Mac um, system um, and it was a programming language which also let you have cards. So it was almost like an early form of PowerPoint, but you could actually program it. And so it was really the first real um, graphical sort of set of cards you could have and make it look quite um, interactive. So HyperCard was really what we were using. Pascal was another one. Yeah. Um, we had Clarisworks, which, um, you know, was what you, well, what's now numbers, I guess, with a Mac. Um, you know, Clarisworks had a word processor, a spreadsheet and a database, all very um, basic, but um, that's the sort of stuff we were, we were doing. Mm. And I guess jumping forward now to, to 2020, um, and uh, I guess a very interesting set of circumstances where uh, teachers and lecturers, um, tutors can't, can't really get together with um, uh, students. Did, did we go back to some of those basic things? Did we all just kind of pull out our, our, our Google Docs and spreadsheets and so forth and get back together? I, I remember when we when we re relocated home and we thought, you know what we'll do, we'll just stick cameras, we'll just we'll just have cams and we'll be fine, we'll keep doing stuff on paper. And within a, a couple of weeks, we just threw it all out and had to reimagine everything. I'm curious to know what that first, I, I guess, month or so was like, maybe in uh, late March, early April, what was the teaching environment like for you? Um, I'm going to say hellish. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not going to I'm not going to glitzy it up or um you know say it was amazing or wonderful. Um we we had to do it in a very quick time period. So um it wasn't like we had a long lead in. It was a matter of you're you're not coming back and you're going to be teaching. Um you're going to be teaching online and this is what the reality was for many teachers as well in the states. So I'm talking about it from my personal perspective as a tertiary um academic, but from the teacher's point of view as well, it was it was really chasing your tail so it was not the best way to describe it is that teachers set out their work for a semester a month a unit um, half a year each one does it slightly differently so they have their work set out they have activities and a teaching teaching activities are really um, done face to face no one really thinks about it in terms of online and I'm, I'm talking about the majority of people um, so your activities are based on having materials in class so if you're going to build, say, bridges, you might need newspaper, masking tape, straws, whatever it is you need. So as a teacher, you get all those you get all those materials, you're ready to have them in class, and then almost it gets ripped out under you and says, and you get told, you can't do this, you have to, you, you're just going to be teaching your classes from home, and you're going to be talking to your students, and you're going to be having, um, you know, your everyday routine from your own home. So it, it makes it very different and very difficult. And you're really on your toes, particularly in that first month, to try and work out, um, you know, how do I do this? What do I do? I, I can only only imagine. I, I don't have kids myself, Tree, so I, 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 I empathise or sympathise with anyone who's had to deal with the situation. As, as time kind of, you know, came, we're, we're now, you know, eight months in, what, I suppose, what, what disciplines, uh, well, I suppose... To start off with, how long do you think it took teachers and students in their kind of new reality to find their feet and kind of make it work? Or are they still trying to? Look, I think it's a combination. I think 
teachers have done exceptionally well um, given the circumstances. I think in Victoria with our second lockdown, I think we, we had a better groove and we had a better idea. We were prepared. We had time. Um, we knew to drill. We knew that we were going to use Microsoft Teams. And, I mean, who would have known Microsoft Teams would have come into them itself? Um, mm. So, you know, Microsoft Teams seemed to be the go-to in terms of what people used in a classroom and teachers and students. Um, Zoom, I mean, again, you know, people use a variety of different things. But the second time around, it seemed to be a lot more um, accepted. I mean, it's not obviously what people would prefer, but under the circumstances when you don't have a choice and you've got to make it happen, this is this is the best we can do. Some of us have seen these viral TikToks and stuff happening online from students in the States with these with this software that has been measuring their engagement like you know seeing if they're talking during class or seeing if they're facing the computer the whole time and you know to mixed results has that been happening in Australia much? No look it's anecdotal so no one's really gone out and measured it um, but I, I can tell you from my own household where I've got two um, two girls who are um, both studying one's in grade five and one's in year 11. Um, the grade five daughter would um, turn people off um, if she didn't like the conversation or she thought people <laughs> were not um, you know um, talking you know appropriately or weren't you know weren't engaging and what we did find was that no one seemed to know whether she was there or not so um and she she worked that out very quickly I mean to give you to give you an example she um she's a bit of a drummer so she does drum lessons and amazing they yeah and they ended up um trying to teach all students in the year level drums so they gave them two drumsticks and obviously people didn't have drums so they could use containers or whatever else and they could you know learn how to do the beats because she's actually been taking drum lessons she thought that this was really primitive and really really you know basic and she just thought what a waste of my time so she would turn up to the beginning of the class make sure that um the teacher marks her off or knows that she's there and then she would mute them and then she would put her own drum you know she would start hitting the drums and doing her own thing so. <laughs> sounds like and me no, in a meeting <laughs> <laughs> no one picked this up for six months and they still haven't so <laughs> Oh, you've just given a whole lot of listeners an idea there, Therese. Um, now, um, I suppose that, that, that definitely worked for your daughter. Um, what, I suppose, disciplines have made the most of it? Like, because, you know, we've got a whole range of subjects that students learn. Um, are there any that, have, that are kind of well suited to this way of teaching? Um, look, a lot of the, the units that don't have hands-on practical aspects... Um, I think are quite fine. So something like a humanities or an English or a business, I think that works well. But when you're starting to talk about subjects that have practical elements, so whether it's a chemistry, physics, um, anything that perhaps goes into a lab or a physical education, um, although having said the, about the physical education um, my daughter's classes still went ahead and she took her computer and she was still doing push-ups and um, star jumps and all sorts of things and skipping. So she was still getting the instructions. So physical education seemed to happen, but you do wonder whether you need to have a teacher sort of saying, hey, look, your technique's not right or you don't you don't kick a ball this way or, hey, watch the window or, you know, any of those things. So there are some elements where the practical classes, I think, are less suited to online um, compared to say 
a, a class which has a lot of, um, you know, theory or a lot of um, discussion. Mm. I'm curious about the protocol. I mean, uh, most of us here would have been doing meetings across some kind of, you know, video service and, and so forth. Uh, is there a different dynamic with, um, I guess, uh, children or teens in terms of how much energy they give give off and um, what, what the feedback is like for, for yourself as a teacher? Um, I'll take it from a from a school point of view. So I know with um, particularly some schools, they use Microsoft Teams and the kids got an extra couple of hours of sleep, which I know um, they really enjoyed and they were quite happy to have. Um, and then they come to class, they're pretty okay, you know, it starts off well, but there was some sort of fatigue by probably lunchtime where they've got one class after another, they've got lots of work to do and they just felt that they were, you know, it was just too structured for their own liking and one of the one of the biggest criticisms was that um, we, you know, students had a lot of work to do. So teachers were giving work, thinking that they need to keep them going, keep them, um, you know, occupied. But the reality was that the students were were feeling like they were burdened by too much work, and so that was one of the issues that did come out. Mm. Interesting. And how about parents' reaction to that? Have they, how have they taken on with this? <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping parents who are not in education or um, or who are not teachers have got a new appreciation for what uh, teachers do in a classroom, um, and particularly when they um, they sit with their you know children and they've had to read or they've had to you know, revisit their mathematics or other things like that and help them out or even explain things, they they might understand how complex a teacher's job is. And even though a parent's only looking after perhaps one or two children, maybe up to three or four even, um, you know, in a classroom where you've got anywhere from 25 to, say, 28 students, that's quite demanding for a teacher to go out there and help each one. And each child is unique and has different experiences and different learning needs. So, um, you know, a teacher teacher has to has to do a lot of things on the run and 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 report back to the parents as well uh, yeah, yeah, parent-teacher interviews have been quite um, fascinating, actually. Um, you know, normally the old-fashioned way of doing parent-teacher interviews, so pre-2020, um, you would go into a class, like you would go to the school, it might be in a big hall or it might be in different classrooms, and so you've got a, you've got a set timetable, particularly if you're talking about secondary school teachers, and you go in from one class, go to the teacher, go to the next one. Sometimes you'll be, um, you'll be um, um, you know, thinking about, okay, what, where's my turn, what's happening, and the teacher might be running late or another parent has jumped in in front of you. Whereas with, um, with the 2020 version of parent-teacher interviews online, you go in, um, you're pretty much in a, in a lobby waiting room, the teacher then just gets you in and eight minutes or nine minutes you have your talk and then she says or he says, I'm terribly sorry, your time is up. And on that note, they just press leave meeting and that's it. <laughs> oh, 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 I'm sorry, your time's up. <laughs> Look, I, I think we could take the good with the bad when it comes to uh, working from home and teaching via via Teams and Skype. Um, it'll be very interesting to see how how we find ourselves in the new normal. Therese Keane, it's been really uh, fascinating having a discussion with you about this uh, new way of living our lives and teaching our kids. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Just a couple of minutes left in the show. Um, just a, a couple of quick things. Um, I did spot... Oh, you're going to say no? We don't no, have no, time. no, no. We've got time. We've got time. I, I was just uh, going to jump in because I want to have talk about this fridge. You can. 
You can, you, can both, you can both talk about the fridge. Go for it. All right. So remember, remember how we all thought that, you know, back in 2000, having a fridge with the internet on the front was a really silly idea? Yeah. Yes. Now, now you can it's play... It's always been cool. What are you talking about? Oh, yeah. Did you ever use one? You can now play Doom Eternal on a Samsung fridge. <laughs> it is... Is it the same as how people... Did you see someone got Doom running on a pregnancy test screen? What? No, really? Yes. I, I think, <laughs> we, we need Doom you know, in every a... in our lives in every way, shape, and form. I am happy. Well, to it walk... is. Yeah. It's been on Mikey machines. It's like it's such the software developers, you know, sort of. Can you get Doom to run on this? It's, it's like but the, it's always it's been like the 1994 Doom, oh. not this, which is actually using Game Pass, right? Yeah, I, I believe so. Um, Maze, you probably know more about this than I do. I just saw Doom on Fridge and got really excited. <laughs> so this is actually like the new Doom. Um, so full 2020 Doom um, on the Fridge using the Xbox Game Pass, um, which has an Android app. So now that we have cloud computing, you don't have to play 1994 Doom on the Fridge. You can play 2000 Doom. That's great. Um, it's been a fun, sh- been a fun show tonight. Thank you to our guests Lucy and Therese. Thank you to Maze Dan and also uh, Yuzan Sayef and uh, Elizabeth McCarthy. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. 